You're listening to a podcast edition of Closer to Truth. For more information about this series, visit our website, closertotruth.com. Welcome to Closer to Truth. I'm speaking with Stefan Alexander a professor of theoretical physics at Brown University, about his new book, Fear of a Black Universe, An Outsider's Guide to the Future of Physics. Stefan, it's great to see you again. The last time, I think, was in Iceland at that great FQXI conference on cosmology. Yes, I remember remember that wonderful day. Um, what, What a good time and what a good conversation we had. That was a while ago. It's good to be back. It was, it was. It was a while ago. Of course, you and I are exactly the same. We look the same. We're, you know, <laughs> physically fit as ever. Um, it, it was fun in, the, in those days. Uh, congratulations on the book. It's a great read. Uh, it, it cuts its own path amidst the many books on physics and cosmology, which, of course, you and I both keep up with. I love the title. So let's, let's start with the title. What, what, what's the backstory? <laughs> yeah. The backstory was a bit of it was meant to be a bit of a, uh, a spoof or a joke to my editor, um, the great the great T.J. Kelleher, um, and um, you know they were like, "Can you give us a good title for for the book?" And I kept coming up with titles, and there were none of them was satisfactory. So I decided, you know, one night at an Irish pub, I was gonna be sarcastic, and I, I told T.J., "You know what? It's free of a black universe, but it's meant to be a joke." And <laughs> so that was part of the joke. But then the other part was that, you know, and I'm, I'm in, you know, during my college years, um, um, early 90s, I was, I, you know, really loved the um, hip hop group Public Enemy. And they had an album called Fear of a Black Planet. So it was a nod to, um, to Public Enemy and, you know, and the fact that they were so influential on me during my college years. Yeah, that, that, that's great. That's a great uh, kind of combination when, when titles... Uh titles come that way. By the way, for Closer to Truth, the where that title came from, I, I when we first started, had a whole bunch of titles that were, you know, kind of uh, intellectual and, you know, really thought through. And we had a subtitle called, uh, This is the Closest You'll Get to Truth. And one of the, uh, the station manager at the time said, your subtitle is better than all your titles. And so that's how it <laughs> That's good. No, actually, I it did. It did. I remember many years ago. I was like, "Close to what?" A, I was like, "That's a very catchy title." So now it's good to know. <laughs> We're very careful not to have a "the." Some viewers think "closer to the truth," and we always correct them. It's not the truth. It's closer to truth. <laughs> very important point. All right, let's let's divide our discussion into four parts. Uh, your book, obviously, number one, but then your hard science your speculative science, and your call for diversity in science. Now, all of those are in your book. Uh, so we'll start with the book overall, and then when we uh, dig down into each of those other three areas, it'll also obviously reflect the book. So uh, on the book, uh, uh, give us its, its overarching thesis. And uh, what I'm looking for is how do you differentiate it from the many other books on physics and cosmology? It definitely, the book was built and inspired, built on um, two books and two writers, two scientists that highly, I mean, influenced me um, throughout my, my, my growing up years and even my years still as a scientist, which was Richard Feynman and Stephen Hawking. Richard, yeah, Feynman wrote a book, um, of course, many books that I've read, but the one that stood out for me was a, uh, The Character of Physical Law. And the other one was, in, in Stephen Hawking, A Brief History of Time, was the first science book I ever read. Um, was given to me as a gift by um, a mentor of mine, Susan Sharon, back when I was 15 years old and, and as a high school student. And I just, so I just remember if I was gonna write a book, I, you know, I wanted the book to kind of be inspired um, and in the tradition of those two books. So I think, you know, it, it builds on that. And I think what makes my book maybe um, unique is that I really embarrassed myself, I think, <laughs> in this book. I kind of um, air my own dirty laundry, so to speak, as a scientist. And as a, um, you know, I, it, when I talk about, you know, the book is not just about 
um, surveying all the physics and you know the cutting edge things that that, we're, that I'm facing and we face in my field, which is how cosmology interfaces with fundamental physics. But it also is a book about how physics and how exploration in theoretical physics is actually done. You seem to sense that the normal uh, theoretical physics that you and your colleagues are doing, while very good and progressive, is not good enough. And that's the, the impression you get, that there needs to be some radically new thinking to get closer to truth. Yes, radical thinking. I think one of the things that I look at, both from a historical lens, but through storytelling, rather than like, you know, the, if I were going to be the reader of this book, I didn't want to put myself to sleep. <laughs> so, so what I did was I used storytelling, which is in that tradition of how Feynman is wonderful, his writing, to kind of show that not all, but some of the breakthroughs, some of the major breakthroughs started off with ideas that stigmatized or maybe, you know, was embarrassing or sounded silly to the colleagues of the creators. So I talked about Faraday was a good example, his invisible fields of you know, lines of force. Uh, Sound, you know, it was like a woo-woo kind of idea, but it turned out, and it was laughable by his peers, by some of his peers. Um, and I can imagine that, but Faraday, I didn't, never, I did, we didn't know him at that time, of course, but there was some kind of, I would say, courage that he exhibited, but to still put that idea out there, maybe knowing that he may have been stigmatized or shunned. And that's where the word black, fear of a black universe, it's about, you know, I kind of play with the idea of blackness spelled out by my actually colleague at Brown University, Glenn Laurie. He wrote a book called The Anatomy of Racial Inequality, and he talks about, he axiomatized um, racial inequality as one of the axioms could be that maybe the idea of blackness is a, a state of stigma, and that that can be attributed not just to skin color, but even ideas, or even, you know, other things. And um, so the idea here is that one can have a, an idea that, that you know, warrants stigma and, uh, or, and that would come with punishment, that would come with being shunned by your own peers. And so the, one of the things I wanted to look into in, in, in writing this book was to explore, are we, you know, is my generation um, in fear of punishment or stigma or what have you? may be fearful of, it, of exploring the, of putting these, these ideas, these speculative ideas on a table where maybe if 0.01% of those things might lead to the breakthrough, maybe we need to like look at this. Yeah, it, it's a very courageous approach. And when you expose yourself in that way and yet look for reality, well, I mean, the word black has many, many features. If we look, if we equate black and dark, I mean, that's yes. like, what, 95% of all reality. So, I mean, you're on the, you're on the winning side there. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So you asked me about the title. The other thing that once that title came about, um, even though it originated as a spoof, I started to really think that actually it is a good title because it has a kind of a complementarity, you know, in a quantum sense. It yeah. has, it can infer all these different meanings depending on who is reading that title. And I, I felt that that was, a, a, you know, a bit cheeky of me. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I loved it. I mean, as soon as I saw it, I mean, it was, it, it was like that, um, that famous optical illusion of, of a duck and a rabbit. And you're yeah. looking at it, keep switching from one to the other. So I had that sensation when that word black hit me. Uh, of both dark energy and, and dark matter on the one hand, and the other uh, because you're Afri African-American. Mm -hmm. and, and those two images kind of went back and forth in, in my mind, which, which I think is a, a wonderful, which, which made me fall in love with the title. Is there, is there some kind of cognitive um, notion of that, what you just described it? What would that be called? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, 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 that's great. It's, it's, uh, you have this perception that switches back and forth, and, and it's, it's almost without your control. That's why it's so fascinating. It's been studied in a lot of different, uh, in different ways. Uh, I mean, in the book, you, you argue that greatness in, in physics requires, your words, transgression and a willingness to reject conventional expectations, and, and that the real problem that Physicists, um, in fact, most scientists avoid delving into uncharted or forbidden territory. You say uh, is out of fear, which is often justified for facing reputational and professional penalties. We all 
We all know that in science, that the safe way to tenure, which is the obvious goal of academics, must go along uh, prescribed paths, because if they don't, they risk, um, they risk uh, career destruction. That was definitely something I had to contend with throughout my career. Um, and sometimes I was like naive in, in that, you know, <laughs> in, um, in that. But I think there, there, there's a lot of truth to that. Um, so let's get closer to it. <laughs> the concept of, of challenging conventional wisdom or uh, current belief, I mean, that's a core of what makes up closer to truth. Uh, um, but it, it, but we, you know, we have certain constraints that we put on that. It must be substantive, coherent, internally consistent, not violating any obvious laws, aligned with empirical data, uh, desirably some originality and being able to make predictions. I mean, all these kinds of constraints, even though we, we want to push hard on the boundaries. Um, and so it, it's, it's the tension is there as well. That's right. And that's why at the outset of my book, in the first very first chapter, I talk about while it's important to push those boundaries, right? At the end of the day, there are standards in, you know, in science. Um, and it's called data. <laughs> it's called, right? And also, you know, there, there is a sense in which the tools, you know, that we, we have to our disposal, we don't just throw them all away. I like to look at it in the following way. I think um, I have a friend that's a painter. And so the painter has a palette and a canvas, if we're talking about the, you know, um, and the colors uh, and, and on the palette and the paintbrush and, you know, these are the tools. And I can imagine having a palette of a different set of colors. And that's sort of like, say, my train. Each color corresponds to, you know, um, my, my, my skill set, the mathematics I know, the concepts, the, the constraints that you're talking about. And what I'm pointing to here is to you know, if we include different colors, more colors, but we don't throw away the basic red, green, and blue, you know, mm -hmm. of my primary colors. So it's an expansion while, you know, honoring and, and um, working within the tradition. Um, and so that's why it, there is a tension between sort of like, you know, building on that skill set, building on the tradition, and then, and then transcending it. You know, of course, we all, I think that, you know, I remember one time Steven Weinberg showed up on um, the late Steven Weinberg, one of my, one of my heroes, uh, and somebody that validated me when I really needed that to happen when I was transgressing um, as a postdoc, you know, and that's another interesting story. But I remember one, one time I just happened to chance, I, I just like literally happened, I was a grad student and I was up at Harvard and um, Steven Weinberg was giving like a talk, but it was a philosophy talk. And he was talking about um, Kunt. Um, um, uh, another con, <laughs> yeah, and he was he was critiquing that, saying, you know, we figure we know about paradigm shifts. We'd love to break paradigms, right? But it's hard. Yeah, and and so yeah, yeah you know, I think a lot of my colleagues would say, Stefan, duh, you're telling us the obvious. We, you know, we we would love to to do that. But I think one of the things that um, I I definitely realized within myself was, yeah, I was, there were times where I wanted to say something and I knew that if I would have said it or if I would have published that idea, I would have been a laughing stock. And then, you know, I would have lost the respect of my colleagues. Right. There's always a tension. You go even further in the book, and as I said, I admire it, but it's, it's very blunt. You, know, you say that as a black physicist, your potential strength is that you're brimming with ideas, your capacity to generate speculative thinking, but you then say that can be an impediment it's an, it could be an impediment because, you know, we have to bring to the forefront, and this is just more of an experience thing, that if, you know, uh, I'll, I'll bring out an elephant in the room. Um, growing up in the United States, I mean, you know, I think I, there was a lot of, you know, I've been, I've been fortunate to have gotten scholarships to some of the elite, some of the best universities. But, I, you know, I grew up in the inner city and I grew up, you know, um, in a, out in New York City's great public school system. Um, and, um, but I, you know, I think that the perception of some of my peers and actually this kept me, this was told to me actually, like throughout my journey was that the perception was, 
well, you got into these top programs, and we had to work really hard to get into these programs, but you got the hall pass through like affirmative action programs. So I think that, you know, some of the perception if left unchecked can then mean that, you know, if a person like that is making that, 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 um, that judgment, and then I come and say some crazy idea, right? The, you know, the judgment will be, well, this guy's nuts. or He doesn't know what he's talking about. So you go into a sort of a self-censorship because of these externalities, which is really an, an inhibition, a social inhibition to your, to your potential as a scientist. Yeah, and some of that is also, again, my own, my own doing. I mean, Shelby Steele, I think it was Shelby Steele or Claude Steele, I forget, with one of the brothers, they, they had this idea called stereotype threat, you know, yeah. that because I'm perceiving that my peers might think that of me, I might actually self-edit, yeah. you know, because I don't want them to, I don't want to be penalized for that judgment. Unfortunately, I couldn't help myself but, but say some crazy things during, during those years. So on to your hard science. What's been your focus in, in recent years? Oh, my focus has been actually trying to find the direction, um, trying to find, yeah, the thing to focus on, actually. In my earlier days, I was very, you know, I think it's important for me to kind of give a sense of where I was and where I am. I think um, I... A lot of what I was trying to do as a cosmologist, working at the interface between cosmology and fundamental theories like string theory, was to try to find a way to merge um, the, some of the deep questions in cosmology with um, some of the things that string theory promised um, to do, which was it's an ultraviolet completion um, of a quantum theory that contains gravity in it. Um, and so some of the problems that like early universe um, scenarios like inflation, um, which was based on quantum field theory, um, <clears throat> was asking, right, for, for some of the things that, you know, the features, the good features that string theory had. And so I worked um, and, you know, worked together, you know, in, I guess in 2000, 2001, co-pioneered a pathway into how to realize inflation um, from um, string theory. And, um, <clears throat> and then what happened was, you know, well, that, that game got very um, complicated to say the least. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> but what started happening to me too, I started to realize that, wait a minute, like I need to, I need to focus more. I felt the need to, to connect my theory to, to, to experiment to, I felt like my, my original calling was, while it's good to have a nice theory, it's even better to have a, a and this is a dream, and it's a far-fetched fetched dream, but the idea that you can have an idea that all of a sudden makes contact with an experiment or an observation that someone makes. So then as a result, I started working on, so I started to identify, okay, what are some real mysteries um, that we know exist for which we don't have a theoretical, like, you know, understand, not a complete theoretical understand. And those things are, you know, like for me, dark energy and dark matter. We know that there's something like that. We need something like dark energy and dark matter to explain um, a handful of different types of observations. So I started to really put my energies over the years into specifically dark matter and some, and new ideas in dark matter. Great. I mean, in your book, you offer uh, three big uh, overarching principles, uh, invariance, uh, quantum theory, especially superposition, and emergence. So very briefly, walk me through each of those, and then we'll, uh, we'll, we'll concentrate on one. In Feynman's spirit, I wanted to, instead of going through a, the jungle of countless equations or the apparent complexity in physics, can we actually soar above the jungle and get a bird's eye view? And the idea was to use Einstein's ideas, um, you know, Einstein's approach to principles, trying to understand, are there general underlying principles that contain much of physical phenomenon? And so in the book, I identified three, um, and this is highly opinionated. And the first is the invariance principle, because not only was it at the forefront of formulating special and the general theory of relativity, but then Hermann Weyl and others realized that that the principle of like basically how invariance and symmetry are linked can be used also as a guidance principle and was used 
to then understand the other three forces as gauge symmetries. And so that was the first principle. The second principle, um, superposition, was an attempt to say, well, since we know that much of you know, physical reality is, um, um, is under you know, um, quantum mechanics um, underlies that, I was trying to identify a principle in quantum mechanics. It was hard to find that principle. So then I relied on Paul Leroux. Um, he wrote a book, Physical Principles, Principles of Quantum Mechanics. And for him, the principle that made quantum, that made quantum mechanics distinct from um, the rest of physics is superposition. The idea now that what you thought to be in a classical world, distinct you know, trajectories or you know, um, you know, configurations that are unique can actually must be considered or must exist simultaneously in order to really properly describe a quantum phenomenon. So, you know, I add up, you know, a left-handed spinning electron and a right-handed spinning electron um, in order to be able to talk about why the Stern-Gerlach experiment gives the results that you get. And the third one is emergence. And that one was to deal with the tendency of um, a theorist like myself and, you know, uh, who are coming in from, you know, a high energy um, particle physics um, background to, to really realize for me to really um, understand that emergence, all right, more is different coming from Philip Anderson is also as fundamental and should be elevated to being a principle um, like the other, what appear to be more reductionist approaches like superposition and invariance maybe. I, I really like that, the, uh, the the prominence you gave to emergence because emergence is a different quality than the other two, which are when you deal with invariance or symmetry and quantum mechanics, uh, superposition, um, those are the most fundamental things that we deal now with string theory as well. But emergence is a very different kind of, uh, of concept. Uh, I like to focus on emergence. We do that at Closer to Truth, where new, sometimes radically new regularities appear at different levels of the scientific hierarchy. So what I'd like to do and discuss for a minute is to differentiate between weak emergence and strong emergence. So mm. weak emergence is where the new regularities can be predictable in principle. We may not be able to do it quite yet, but in principle they are from the lower, mm. the laws of the regularities of the lower levels, like uh, the wetness of water, the angles between the hydrogen and the oxygen. We may not know why the wetness occurred in the past, but when you can figure that out, you can you can explain when you have multiple molecules in those configurations, you can get a wetness phenomena. Superconductivity, which I think you right. to, is a Pro magnetism. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, so you can predict that from the lower level, but strong emergence is where even in principle, the emergent properties cannot be predicted from the lower level. Some people think consciousness is something like that. Some people say a strong emergence doesn't exist. There is no such thing that all emergence will ultimately be weak emergence because we will be able to predict it. What's your view? No, this is really interesting because one of the things I struggle with the most in writing this book was to even try to um, understand emergence for my even for my own <laughs> uh, to my own satisfaction. So there was a caveat in writing this chapter, the chapter on emergence, which was, I was also writing things I didn't completely understand. And I think one of the things I, it really forced me to, to and I'm still actually contending with this. I'd like to hear your thoughts too. Um, it has to do with, um, you know, the standards, like, you know, you know when, we, when we think about what science is about, you know, oftentimes you'll hear, well, it's about making a prediction. But what happens if you then ac accept that there are going to be some phenomena and they're scientific though, they still fall under, you know, the, um, you know, the, I don't know what the word is, the standards of science and the exploration of science, it's no longer, you can no longer predict. Mm. Then what, what toehold you, you know, do you, I mean, yeah, so what, what do you do then? I mean, then what now becomes a standard in that? in that inquiry. Mm. I and mean, so if emergence, if, a, if, if strong emergence or phenomena that you ascribe to strong emergence cannot be predicted, then how, what's your way into actually 
gain an understanding of that? That's the question. Yeah, and that, and that's that's a, a, a terrific way to describe it. Um, and, and strong emergence would be defined as where lower level laws would not be able to explain it. You can explain it in its own context, the regularities, how they work and what happens to it, but you could not explain it in terms of the, the constituent parts. So strong emergence is the ultimate anti-reductionism. Now, now again, that some people say that does not exist, that strong emergence is the, you know, the, the idea of some people who wanna, wanna have some mystery in the universe and ultimately, all, all strong emergence will be uh, reduced into a weak emergence because you'll ultimately figure out what you mm -hmm. need to know. Uh, mm -hmm. So, so that, that's a real open question. I think it's, that's one of the most fundamental of, uh, questions in our physical understanding of reality is, is there such a thing as strong emergence? Uh, you know, I, I think there is, and I, I would like to think there is, you know, George Ellis, a, a buddy of ours, uh, uh, thinks there is. He's one of the strongest proponents of strong emergence, uh, but not everybody does. A lot of people don't, and I, I, I understand that. Um, so to me, this is a, one of the, the great open questions and, and a great probe, uh, as, as you described it well. That's very interesting. I wonder if, like, maybe the cosmological constant problem is a version of strong emergence. <laughs> Mina, let me say it another way, meaning, like, so how would you differentiate something that's just not computable or for which it's just too hard for our puny minds to find out the underlying mechanism and strong emergence? Yeah, that, that, that's all great questions. I think, I think there are two questions there. The question of things that are not computable. I mean, that, that's a fascinating question. Roger Penrose, of course, is, uh, is famous for, for arguing that about consciousness and other, other kinds of things. Those who would have, for example, information as the, um, as the fundamental nature of reality, I think by definition would assume that everything is computable because if mm -hmm. everything is fundamentally information, information is by, by you know, ipso facto is computable. So, um, I, you know, I, I think these are wonderful probative questions that, uh, that, that are at the, the, the forefront. It's especially the case as you, of course, go up the, the hierarchy of science. It's, it's not the case in fundamental physics um, as much. Uh, maybe there is something there. But um, so th this is, a, you know, this is, this is a real open kind of question that I think uh, uh, you know, you sh should, sh people should pay more attention to. Uh, just to give a little plug, we have a, a, a special episode on Closer to Truth called Strong Emergence. And we have a number of signs, including George Ellis, making a, a pitch for it. And others, uh, you know, contradict it and say they're, you know, it, it, in principle that it, it shouldn't exist, uh, strong emergence. It, and it is, it, and we think it exists because of exactly what you said, that our puny minds or our minds either don't know now, or some people say, you know, the human mind or the human brain was not evolved to figure out whether there's strong emergence. It was figured out to escape from, from a, a hyena or a jaguar. And it's not clear that, you know, you, you know, the two are related to each other. So great open question. I think I'm leaning towards, um, you know, yeah, towards believing, if believing is allowed here in, in um, yeah, the veracity of strong, the existence of strong emergence. So this is this is an issue we should actually monitor over the years and see what develops on it. I'm a, I'm a strong emergence um, uh, kind of champion in saying this is something that should be discussed. I'm not saying it's it, it's real. I'm saying it should be continued to be discussed. Let's go on to your speculations, which I found fascinating. So very very quickly on each, <laughs> very quickly on each. Uh, what was before the Big Bang? Either um, some pre-geometric, I mean, in some something, some state of the universe where the very concept of space and time just is not uh, that, you know, is not described by Einstein's theory of general relativity, which is a classical description of space and time. Um, or there was actually, you know, maybe some contracting phase where the universe was actually collapsing and bounced into um, an expanding universe. We call that the big bounce. Or, or, or like some very strange quantum, or you know, maybe the you know, you know, I think like if string theory was operational, and I'm still a fan of string theory, by the way, 
if string theory was operational, then we have to then look at the universe through the lens of stringy dynamics. And, you know, there's this idea of Brandenburger and Waffe that they call string gas cosmology. It could be the universe was all, you know, all strings, you know, um, and where gravity and the, and the forces merge at that at such high energies. Mm. And, you know, but um, it's a, yeah, so the answer is I don't know, <laughs> but those are some options. Yeah, um, a quantum theory of gravity, uh, any, any wild speculations? I've had both the fortune and misfortune to learn and work a little in both string theory and um, non-perturbative formulations of, of quantum gravity, like loop quantum gravity or spin foam and um, causal sets. You know, I think, you know, it'll be wonderful if like, you know, that there's some merging between string theory. I think string theory is part of the answer. If there's a theory of quantum string theory, I don't think it's going to be the final answer, but it is a pass. It is a, it's a portal into the final answer. Strings are going to be playing a role there. Um, and um, like one simple thing, I think like, you know, the strong CP problem is interesting that Petri and Quinn, Helen Quinn, one of my mentors, um, came up, you know, with the way to solve that problem required a, a field called the axion, a particle, which, which is like one of the best dark matter candidates. To solve yeah. the strong, a, a particle physics problem, this particle, you know, it comes, comes, comes for free as a dark matter candidate. It's really interesting that in string theory, you know, string theory predicts axions for its quantum consistency as a quantum theory of gravity. I find it to be really fascinating. So, but I also think that maybe some merging between loop quantum gravity and string theory, because they both concern themselves with one dimensional objects is fundamental. Hmm. And loop quantum gravity is these flux tubes um, of gravitational flux called loops. And the string theory, it's strings. So it'll be interesting to see, you know, in the future. And, you know, of course, it's something that I think about too, um, you know, when I have some free time. So combining, uh, combining string theory and loop quantum gravity sounds like you're trying to have a merger between Democrats and Republicans because, you know, they're, they're, kind, of, they're kind of opposed to each other. You can say that again. So <laughs> good luck with me make, make, saying that at like, you know, a, a string theory party or a loop quantum gravity party. <laughs> right, right. You won't, you, won't get, you won't get elected. You have to be a strong proponent of each one as both Democrats and Republicans are, are learning. But closer well, to the behind the scenes, you know, they're always, a, you know, a, you know, a, a, a stringocrat or a, 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 a loopocrat that come behind the scene and say, you know, it'll be a really cool if that, if that happened. <laughs> yeah, but, but you can't publicize it anyway. Closer, can't to, publicize it, right. closer to truth is not is apolitical, no politics, but uh, you can see the same kind of human sociology between yes. you know political energies and tensions on both Republicans and Democrats. Unless you're a pure liberal or a pure right wing Republican, you know you're not you're you're not a true one. Uh, yes, you, you can see the same sociology working as an example between string theorists and non-string theorists, whether it's loop quantum gravity or some other kind of uh, approach. Well, one of the reasons why I embraced cosmology so much um, was that when my advisor, I was, I, I was trying to figure out what he was. I said, so are you an astrophysicist? And he goes, no, we talked to them. I said, are you a particle physicist? And he said, no, but we talked to them too. Yeah. I said, so are you a relativist? He goes, no, we talked to them too. So the idea, that's why I really felt at home when I was in my early days trans, I was like, because I never felt like, you know, I felt like I need to get all those tools to solve my problems. And yes, this idea that you're not a pure, you're not a good enough of this or more um, enough of this or that is also, I think, can get in the way, going back to our original discussion. I agree. Of breaking new ground, yeah. I agree. So you, you go further than these uh, these core ideas and, and you've proposed something that the universe is self-learning in, <laughs> in that it can learn its own laws in the same way that artificial intelligent neural networks teach themselves in an iterative fashion. Uh, it sounds a little uh, speculative. It's extremely speculative and deliberately so. I think like, you know, one of the exercises or uh, strategies, and I got this from, um, you know, I got this from uh, being a student of jazz that um, oftentimes what we sometimes get caught um, playing the same patterns in our improvisations. 
And like, you know, you just, you just habitually do this. You think you're improvising, but you're always going to be playing and you get frustrated playing the same old, you know, um, same old jazz, you know? So, um, so one of the strategies is to literally like break something to literally like play out deliberately, you know, play outside the chord changes. And, and when you hear it, then you can hear new things. So likewise, um, so one of, one of the exercises that I've engaged in is to literally deliberately come up with the most insane speculative ideas, but maybe based on something. So in this case, you know, one of the things I found very interesting is that underlying string theory and other approaches, other approaches to quantum gravity are theories called matrix theories. So literally the objects uh, are no longer functions or, you know, functions that, that, that like a string world sheet, right? that becomes the object of quantization. But you already have a discrete structure. You have a matrix. You can think of it as combining vectors together, right? So you have a matrix and the matrix, you know, it turns out that, you know, Banks, Fischler, Schenker, and Susskind um, had a proposal that the mother theory or M theory was a matrix theory. And then to the other approaches to quantum gravity that again, point to this matrix theory. So, the idea was just simply to realize that if that's the case, then when you actually look at the mathematics of a matrix theory um, subject to quant versions of quantum gravity, and you think that these matrices are going to basically tell us something about our gauge theories and our gravitational theories, which are our laws, you know, then you can say, well, how does it know which one, which gravity theory? And then when you stare at this thing, it does have the structure of certain types of neural networks. So then it was just like, you know, okay, so let's play with those two ideas. Let's play those, you know, and analogize those two things. One of the questions I have for you, I know that, and again, and like, I know that you have a neuroscience background is, um, you know, it seems that I heard that somehow the human mind, somehow, I think Douglas Hofstadter even said this and wrote a book about somehow analogy making is somehow some basic functioning of the mind. But basically that strategy is something I'm explicitly doing. I'm just like, okay, neural networks mathematically look like this. And look at it, there's some semblance to this matrix models. So maybe they may, I can like subject these matrix models to some kind of learning mechanism. I think it's a, it's a great exercise. It's, 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 it's fun, obviously, but I, I, it, it pushes boundaries. I mean, I, I look upon all this as the, within the framework of general systems theory, where you look for ways of things happening at different levels or different places in the scientific repertoire in the scientific landscape. Uh, and so th how do things work in different levels? Uh, Santa Fe Institute, for, you know, as you know, uh, Murray Gell-Mann and then uh, Jeffrey West, uh, Stuart Kaufman and others have been looking at some of these laws working at, at different levels. And it's really remarkable how things how things uh, uh, can occur. I mean, in the mind, there are, you know, people who I greatly respect, Noam Chomsky with a universal grammar, Marvin Minsky with his society of minds, and I don't think where Douglas Hofstetter, as you've said, you know, see how, how the, the, the kind of the higher level uh, structural things work. Um, and then how those are instantiated in the neural network, as we know, Interesting. Uh, it, it, it's um, it, 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 it is a deep probe of of uh, of how reality is structured. It's not a guarantee. I mean, it may be that at each level there are completely different ways of thinking, but it's definitely something good. Now you go further than that, and and I'm trying to understand the difference between a self-learning universe and an, e an evolving universe. Um, is, is is there a, a do you see a, a fundamental difference there? Yeah, I think one difference is um, is in a self-learning situation, there's a question of in natural selection, let's say, you know, some, some outcomes will have to unfortunately um, be annihilated and that which survives will get to pass on its traits. In a self-learning situation, there's some kind of feedback because you have one system and it doesn't, it doesn't get a chance to be annihilated. It's, you need to basically, I think the idea is that there's information that, 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 that gets um, fed back into the system and, and, and transformed to move in and stabilize that which is useful.
that I like that 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 key distinction that a feedback mechanism uh, is the in, in in essence the differentiating factor. It's not just a a linear sequence of events that has outcomes after outcomes in an evolving universe, but rather a feedback mechanism that can alter the uh, instead of instead of uh, uh, something being put out of existence, it's modified in its existence. Yeah, sort of like, you know, I'm going to, um, in fact, quantum mechanics has a little bit of this already. So one of my favorite, I had this teacher, Stavros Falieros, he was this really, I mean, he actually inspired me a lot. He was Greek, this Greek guy, and he was one of the most well-read people I knew, and he had paintings of Dali in his office. But one <laughs> time, he taught us, like, you know, in quantum mechanics, ready for this? You, you can study the propagation of a wave packet, but what you do, what you, the problem is you have an in a, not the infinite well, where you, it, but you have a, it's going up, you have a cliff and it drops off to infinity. Mm. So then classically, if I throw a ball, it just falls down this cliff. It can't help itself. But quantum mechanics, if you solve the problem, it, it, the quantum wave packet moves and then, and like runs away. We call it the quantum version of fear. <laughs> right somehow it knows it, it can sense this this well that it's not you know and i think likewise it's sort of like you know somehow the system knows that I'll, i will be annihilated if i go and let me just stare away from here a little bit <laughs> <laughs> yeah well, that's uh you know i don't know if we put intentionality there but you know there's a lot of speculation in terms of uh what is fundamental in reality in, in consciousness studies there's a a growing belief in, in different kinds of panpsychism pan where uh, where uh, where uh, some proto consciousness is built into all reality that sounds crazy um uh, but there are a lot of philosophers and some scientists who are at least giving that a second thought i mean you posit if, if i got this right a cosmic mind uh, which is one step further than that. And as I read that, uh, it seems like the universe would then be in a certain sense, like a kind of aware kind of being, like a Gaia Earth on steroids. Uh, <laughs> just trying to get my hands on what, what would be then a cosmic mind. Yeah, you have to blame that on Schrodinger because Schrodinger you know, wrote a book called What is Life? And in fact, my book actually, in some, it's, it's really a celebration of what is life because some of the questions I tackle at the end of the book were questions that he left, you know, as you know, when when I read that book, you know, he um, he wanted he was able to understand just using pure reason, quantum mechanics, um, the structure that would become DNA, and the, the idea of negentropy, you know, that living systems basically um, negate entropy in an open system, and but he had this one thing about he had this he left with this weird question, which was why are there so many minds, you know. <laughs> And that was left dangling, and I so I decided to um, to use this idea. Um, and I I, re I did resort to panpsychism in a, in a following way. That was also inspired by John Wheeler, it from bit the yeah. idea that if something exists, it is information. So information is tied in with um, with tied in with the existence of of, of an existence, and. And so if that's the case, then, you know, then Albert Einstein told us that actually space itself, right, is not empty. Space exists. When, so when you now revisit the picture of the early universe and say the universe was just vacuum and then space is created, then the idea is that I, I should then associate a fundamental unit then of consciousness, but not consciousness in the sense of, you know, the higher, as he said, the higher levels of consciousness or the different states of consciousness but a proto-consciousness, a, pro a consciousness that is consistent with the existence of space. So what, is that, what, what type of self-awareness would that existence of space need to have? Well, that one is just, I would say, it's completely non-local because to say that space is here or space is there, no, it's by definition, it, it's the sum totality. So it was a non-local form of proto-consciousness associated. And I posited that with the same way of saying like, well, well, if you have a problem with that, then you should have a problem with me ascribing electro, a fundamental unit of, of electric charge to a particle and a fundamental unit of mass, right? These are all a priori assumptions we make. So yes. I say, let me tack that sense of internal awareness at, that, this, at the level of the complexity of the, of the thing itself that has the awareness 
And anyway, I would like to hear your thoughts about um, how well, to really well, think about pan What's interesting to me is that, you know, we talk, I talk to uh, neuroscientists, I talk to philosophers, and many of the philosophers certainly are looking to panpsychism, many of them by, by, the, by the fault that everything else is just absolutely not working and cannot work. And therefore they're, they're forced in, into something like that. And, uh, but that's as far as they go. But it's interesting to me to see you as a quantum physicist and, and uh, knowledgeable about spring, string theory, willing to take on that and seeing how the two would relate because most of the philosophers don't, don't even go there. They just say it has to have some, some uh, fundamental structure in reality, but just like the four forces have at, at different energy levels start combining together. We haven't gotten the final one, but we, we you know, we have three of them um, and, um, and then get to gravity uh, that, that in some sense, if there is consciousness in a panpsychic sense, that has to be integrated too, if it's part of the same reality in some sense. Uh, it may not be an energy level sense, but in some sense. And and what you're doing and bringing your expertise to this table is that kind of discussion. But what I'd like to do now in this context is take you and I back, you know, both, both of us trained as scientists and ask a different kind of question. And that is how do we differentiate between serious speculative science? And I put a panpsychist view is, is a serious point, a, a, a conversation to have. But how do we differentiate that from what we can call crackpot science? Um, and, and, you know, we get a lot of different people sending ideas to closer to truth because we're, you know, all over the world. And I can't judge, you know, it's hard to see. It's not a bright line because in the 19th century, Einstein's relativity would have been probably seen crackpot that you have is, you know, that if you, if you, if you have uh, any sort of, uh, of, of, uh, um, of velocity, that it would be constant in any re reference frame uh, and, and have different views from different references, that, that, would, that would seem like a crackpot idea, uh, but it's, you know, a fundamental part of reality. So how do we, how do we deal with that? It's a really, really good question, and it's at the, you know, after writing my book, I've been getting even more and more of the, um, you know, of, you know, more and more ideas from people yeah. um, <laughs> that, um, you know, at one level, you want to, you want to, you want to be encouraging and open-minded, you know, and I think there's one, one clear category where people, they, they put an idea out there and it's, you know, it was already refuted. Um, by, you know, the Mickelson-Morley experiment or something yeah. like that. And they persist right. to, you know, um, so, you know, so I think that I can imagine a situation where an idea is put out there and it does smell like something that's cracked pottery. But, you know, one is still, uh, let me put it this way, on a Coleman, when he came out with free jazz, right? That was definitely, you know, to a lot of straight ahead players, you know, to be, you know, noise or crack pottery and that kind of stuff in terms of tra the traditional bebop and jazz. But really advanced ears, like, you know, like Coltrane, they can still hear Charlie Parker and Ornick Coleman's playing. So I think there's a responsibility on my end, which is that, if someone throws something, I, I was I'm able to say, okay, you know, I can I can see that this person is still still commands some of the basic, you know, knowledge base. It doesn't get you off, I would say, you know, having crazy ideas. It doesn't get you off uh, the, um, from actually being able to frame it within the tradition and within the tools and the you know concepts of the hundreds of years of, um, of, you know, the development of the science. So I yeah, think that's yeah. a, a kind of a healthy balance of both. And it's hard, it's a hard balance to, to yeah. think because sometimes, yeah, some ideas are just way out there and crap up. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, it's, it's a good discussion. There's no answer. There's clearly no bright line. Things change over time. Um, but, you know, we have to have, you know, literally two brains 
We should allow our, our, our creativity to flourish. Uh, you've done that wonderfully in this book um, in, 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 the, in an area in physics where it's not ordinarily found. It's found in jazz and in, in painting and various other things more naturally, but you've done it in science, which is great. On the other hand, you and I in our different worlds have to be very tough-minded with our other part of our brain and, and subject these ideas to, to rigorous uh, thought experiments, uh, experimental or observational data if those are available. Let's go on to your uh, views of science and religion and science and the existence of, of God. Uh, you, many scientists won't even touch that question. Uh, I love that question and I know you do too. Mm-hmm. And we talked about that many years ago, I remember. We did, we did. Um, yeah. uh, how have we advanced, if any? <laughs> For me, God is like, the word God, I mean, or the concept of God is, is um, in, in the language that I'm using it, is a place filler for mm -hmm. this idea that I have that no matter how smart we find ourselves collectively as, as um, a species, there might be a category of knowledge, or I don't even know if, if the word is even knowledge, that um, transcends um, our ability to, to know. And I know that's kind of like, you know, for a physicist, like it's hard to imagine that because we always continue to make advances, not only in physics, but in the sciences in general. But imagine that that thing does exist and okay, I'll call that thing God, okay? Um, but in, 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 but I, I think in terms of like, you know, what's the word when you sort of personalize, you kind of project some personality to God? I think that for me is still a mistake because then it contradicts everything I just said there. Anthropomorphizing, yeah. yeah. Yeah, anthropomorphizing God because then that will contradict the, the way I just defined God. Since we talked um, many, many years ago, let's see, it's probably around, uh, that was 2007, so you know, 14 years ago, frightening. Um, I've talked to many, many scientists and, and uh, many mutual friends that you and I have, and I think we would all agree that all of them are smart and many of them are super smart. And, yes. yet, and yet there's this distinction among these smart and super smart scientists who believe in God, many don't, but some do. And yet mm -hmm. these, these are physicists who are all trained in the same way of thinking. Um, and so uh, I've experienced, uh, particularly on Closer to Truth, a large number of the sets of, of both of these sets, because it's not just my personal friends, this is sort of my kind of profession in, in talking to people about this. And um, I've come to kind of a strange um, way of looking at it. And that is if, if these two groups of people who are, and both are, many of them are very sure <laughs> that, that their perception is correct, that there's absolutely no God and that's ridiculous, or that they have this deep belief in, in that, that they are certain. There are, there are people in the middle, of course, of two. But my way of, of dealing with that is I'm saying that maybe the universe, maybe reality is theologically ambiguous because these Ooh. sets of people. And if, if that's the case, that is an interesting fact about reality that we'd have to deal with. I kind of like that, actually. It, it smells of like, you know, I would say the fundamental logic, if you believe quantum mechanics is fundamental, is complementarity, and which is a kind of a sense of an ambiguity in a sense, because, you know, wave particle, actually, you, you need both. Therefore, by definition, it's ambiguous in terms of what quality you're talking about and this 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 idea is it's right it's kind of, there's a kind of complementarity right um if the universe is ambiguous about you know it's like our projections of a physical reality versus something say more spiritual or non-physical right if it, if there's a complementarity between those two things that's very interesting yeah that would be really weird and each of these groups <laughs> they don't think there's a complementarity they think that each of them think the universe is shows obviously there's no need for God. And others would say that the universe is the expression of God. And obviously in a natural theology sense, it's, it's, a, it's a demonstration of, it's not a proof, but it's a demonstration. So when I, when I 
when I'm when I'm uh, kind of immersed by both of those uh, uh, groups, um, that I'm kind of forced into this way of thinking of the universe as ambiguous in this respect, and and that's a fact that we that we de- that we need to deal with, and and maybe that's kind of a clue. Interesting. So you're saying that if you if you want to push it to the next level, it's ambiguous about a purpose or not having a purpose, for example, because one yeah. of the things we anthropomorphize, yeah, yeah. right? Yeah, absolutely. That would that would be that would be part of it. And that's not not a statement of an agnosticism that we don't know. It's a statement that we do know, but we do know this complementarity, this this both that both can be apprehended. And and so it's not that we're don't know, but it's that we do know both. And to me, I can't take it further than that now, but but as I said, I think that's a fact to be considered. So therefore, if it's if it's something like that, then it's something that's actually now beyond God as well. I don't know how I would put it. It's something that is a it is a fact of the human perception of reality. And it's a reflection of what the human perception is, it's a reflection of what reality is. We, we can't get out of that of that of that uh, system because there's reality in our perception of it, and we can't differentiate one from the other because we're we're part of that. You know, this is something that you know both of us should continue to because I, I love the fact that in your book, um, of fear of a black universe. I want to say it again. Um, that's a great book. Uh, that uh, that you you deal with these kinds of of issues, and as you do. We should continue to have these kind of conversations. We don't have a lot of time, but I do want to um, to give some time to an important um, uh, uh, view that you have that you've put in the book on diversity in science, and uh, and I think this is an important area that you have highlighted, and um, you're in a unique position to do so. And I think uh, on Closer to Truth, we have a responsibility uh, to, to deal with it and deal with it uh, overtly and honestly. Uh, you are president of the National Society of Black Physicists. So first thing I wanna know, tell me a little bit about that organization, and then we'll talk a little bit about diversity in science. Sure, so NS, the National Society of Black Physicists was founded back in 1978. Um, and it was founded by, you know, because um, the few physicists that were around, black physicists, they really wanted to, you know, continue to have the opportunity to, when others in the community re- weren't being as welcome in, let's say, um, they want to still have the opportunity to continue to do physics and go to talks. And so they form a working group and that then, because it met that need, it just grew into now, you know, on the order of a thousand members spread across the United States and, and, and the world. And by the way, we, are, um, we have members that are not black physicists, but like from all different you know, walks of life. And um, so that's, that's the thing. And it's all about like, you know, um, yeah, we have a, national, a meeting every month and we have a student council and we have research um, opportunities for students. And so it's been a, it's been a lot of fun. And um, I've, I've gotten to know, a lot, know and work with and talk to a lot of students and um, other professionals, yeah. How many members and how many of them are black? I would say most, you know, uh, I don't know that exact percentage, but I would say, you know, I would say 90% of our membership are black and maybe the other 10% are, you know, um, non-black. Assorted colors. Oh, assorted colors, that's right. That's right. Uh, now, 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 you, you uh, put forth the proposition, and it's a challenge, that diversity is not only a social justice good, which I think everybody would agree with, but that it also enhances the quality of the science we accomplish. I think that's a quote from the book. Now, mm-hmm. I've heard critics say, and you know, I might say it myself, uh, mm-hmm. there is no black physics, there's no white physics, there's no yellow physics, there's no red physics, there's only physics. Uh, so, totally <laughs> so by, by saying that, uh, that criticism I think is is not addressing what you're saying, but I, I think those two points are talking important to bring it apart out, yeah. from each other. Uh, and so I want to get your sense of reacting to that criticism. Yes. So the, the physics itself and, you know, the, you know, the equations that you look at is colorless, as the saying goes, right? It's um, um, it is universal mathematics. It's universal. Um, but the people that do it, um, it comes from people and it comes also to it also comes from social groups and social structures. 
And that's an emerging phenomenon, by the way. You know, there's a great sociologist, Lewin, I forget his name. He talked about the force field theory and that mm -hmm. there are emerging phenomenon of when groups of people come together. So I did do, you know, I, I did like do my homework and study, bought some sociology into it. I work with a sociologist, social theorist named Mark Gould, the great social theorist, and write in some of these chapters to realize that actually, yeah, we do bring our cultures and we'll, you know, we do bring, you know, our language and all these things. They do inform how we might approach a physics problem. But also, I wasn't even talking about diversity even along, and even of culture and language, right? I was also, I also wanted to bring in, you know, um, sort of cognitive diversity and all these things too. So, um, and also um, I use as some examples in the book to talk about some of the breakthroughs that happened came from an outsider perspective. You know, mm -hmm. I talk about when Bardeen was trying to solve superconductivity and found that there was, you know, they were hitting a, a brick wall for like 40 something years. He, you know, brought a, a particle physicist, Leon Cooper, um, trained as, you know, uh, a field theorist, um, relativistic field theorist, um, who came with a fresh pair of eyes. So that outsider's perspective is really what I'm talking about, the value of it. Again, I'm also saying that one has to respect and work within the tradition and the tools. But sometimes when you, if you know, when you, when you have an outsider perspective, it could bring value. And um, history has shown us time and time again that oftentimes when fields overlap and we bring perspectives in, and I, that's also a part of diversity as well as far, you know, in terms of how I think about diversity in science. Yeah, I, I think that uh, needs to be a critical part of our conversation. And, and in that sense, diversity is the key, the key aspect. And um, uh, when you're looking at a, a racial uh, diversity, that's that that in our in our society is a neon sign for diversity. But it, it just uh, it just sort of represents diversity. But diversity is the key that how do you balance, and I think it's a question of balance, how do you balance mm -hmm. the need for affirmative action to make up, at, at least in part, for the disadvantages of underrepresented groups? Uh, you know, uh, um, Black Americans, as, as an example, is, is one, but there are other underrepresented groups. So affirmative action to make up for some of those historical underrepresentation is a very legitimate um, uh, social uh, responsibility, while mitigating, reducing the social impact of, of, of society seeing affirmative action as setting a lower standard and therefore yeah. stigmatizing mm. some people in the process. And it's, mm. it seems like those two uh, uh, social human pressures are opposed to each other, that we're not going to solve it in some optimization sense but we, we have to recognize the reality of both of those factors. Yes, I agree. And I think that's a very important, uh, you know, I mean, you know, the fact that, you know, so I, I would say one thing is a perception that affirmative action or as it's, um, you, know, um, you know, it's as it's perceived as to be some kind of like lower in status and a hand me, a hand me out for those who may not be as deserving as those who worked hard to get into the same position. And I would say the following, I think what needs, what, and if, whether or not this can ha happen in practice, because it may take more um, human effort and resources, is to actually, when we, when, you know, when we look at um, a situation like that, like for example, who is gonna be a scientist? Who should get into this, what have you? I think it's really, I think about um, shifting or um, reorienting how we evaluate and what metrics we use to look for who can be the next, you know, a, a promising scientist. So I think things like, you know, grit, promise, like potential, you know, there, I think there are more intelligent ways we can, we can look to see, you know, um, you know, what scientific potential looks like rather than just say a grade, a particular grade that's on, that clearly is going to test something, might test competence or exposure to something, but is it going to test your creativity? Is it going to test your ability to break new ground? So I think it's a real question about becoming more sophisticated about how we evaluate and also more honest about what 
you know, if, if affirmative action is about gaining access to something, then we got to be honest and say then we all, to some degree, benefit from some form of affirmative action, right? So we need to apply that word to everybody then. <laughs> And that might equalize things if we're going to be honest about it. That's true. I mean, in, in, yeah. in, in our lives, if you have a certain level of socioeconomic benefit, I mean, my, my, my father and my mother were both uh, um, extremely poor. They were children of immigrants. Uh, my mother grew up in Harlem mm -hmm. in New York. And so uh, my, my father, Lower East Side. Nice. Uh, you know, they, my father, when I met my mother was earning uh, $8 a week uh, selling uh, clothing, whatever it was, he became successful and had a successful business. And so I grew up, you know, upper middle class, and I didn't have to worry about anything. Mm -hmm. So I could concentrate on academics. <laughs> so I mean, my, my father yeah. may have been naturally smarter than I was, he was valedictorian, but he couldn't go to college, he couldn't afford it. So he never went to college and never had yeah. an education. Uh, but by him being successful, I had that. So you know, it, it, yeah. it, that validates your concept of, of everybody has affirmative action in different ways. Yeah, I think it's interesting. I like how you do. So one of the things I think is interesting to me is the chasm between the word affirmative action and privilege, because they're kind of like affirmative action and privilege. They're kind of intertwined, right? I mean, so. Yeah. We, and so instead of this language, you know, in, in our heated times of saying, okay, you know, white people have privilege and then, you know, people of color have affirmative action. Let's, let's equalize and say, you know, they're all different forms of privilege and they're kind of distributed in this way. And let's be honest about it. Yeah. And, um, you know, and then if I have the privilege because to get in, but, you know, it's based on the fact that I've demonstrated I'm coming from an inner city school that I have great promise, then, you know, everyone should understand that yeah, I'm different. I have great promise. I have to live up to that and catch up and work hard. And, you know, so I think, yeah, we need to be a little bit more sophisticated and nuanced about, about that. And I totally agree with you. With you. Stefan Alexander, a great book, Fear of a Black Universe, an Outsider's Guide to the Future of Physics, recommended to everyone. What I appreciate is you're personifying the, both the importance and the excitement of physics in our grand human experiment. And one of the things you've said, which struck me, is that we need to embrace discomfort. You say it's a critical part of the process. Our conversation about affirmative action is slightly discomforting to me. Uh, and, and I think that's good. And I think I thank you for bringing that into the conversation. So uh, our conversation has made me more appreciative of the hidden constraints, both in physics and in society, and, and maybe made me a little uncomfortable. And maybe that's a sign I'm getting closer to truth. So <laughs> thank you very much, Stefan. We'll, we'll keep in touch. Uh, our next conversation should be much shorter than between our last one and this one. Let's make it happen. Robert, I want to personally thank you um, you know, you're, you're, you know, just really inspiring um, those of us. When I was a younger scientist, it was really important that we had, we had a voice like yours, and, uh, and it's um, not to be taken for granted. So thanks on behalf of so many of us younger scientists that um, get inspiration from you. To watch complete conversations with over 100 of the world's leading thinkers on cosmos, consciousness, and meaning, visit our website, closertotruth.com.